joyful we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melts the clouds of sin and sadness. Thank you for joining us for this program from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our program with others. Now, we take you to the service of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. It is so good to see you. Thank you for the way that uh, you have sung praises this morning and participated in worship. It was, it's, it's always encouraging. Of course, we kind of sit under the, the balcony back there. And when I come up front before I preach, it's the singing obviously up front is better than in the back. And I'm just always so uplifted uh, to hear the vo- your voices come together uh, and, and make that joyful noise to God. And, and I know that those songs and those words and those praises have, have left this room and have ascended into the throne room of God. And I know that He is proud of our praises, happy of our praises this morning. So just thank you for participating in that way this morning. Now, let's go to God in prayer. Then we're going to jump right into our lesson for the, for the morning. God, we thank you for the chance to be together and to uh, come uh, into, into this room and lift our voices. We thank you for the chance that we've had to uh, commune with one another and give thanks uh, for the sacrifice of your son and for what he uh, has done for us, the blessings and the mercy and the grace that comes from his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We thank you for our teachers this morning that have taught in our classrooms. We thank you for everyone that came uh, to be students of your word today. We pray that as we open up your word again, that we will grow in spirit and in truth and grow closer to each other as we strive to grow closer to you. Bless this passage that we're going to study from today. May it enrich our lives. May it convict our spirits. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue in through our series on uh, questions that Jesus asked. Of course, appreciate your patience with me last week. As, as like I said, I had a hard time kind of figuring out where this particular uh, text, this particular story uh, was going to land as I was trying to prepare thoughts and, and a message around it. I'll show you what it is. I think I mentioned it last week that we're going to look at from Matthew 16, the question uh, that Jesus asked of, who do you say that I am? And, and, when, and it's, it's an interesting question. It's a question that we have talked about and answered and looked at in a lot of different ways. But as I have studied and as I've been kind of preparing for this particular series, one of the things that I've tried to do in my study time, and more so in my study time than my teaching, but a little bit in my teaching is, as we get into these passages together, is I've tried to kind of set the stage for what's really going on in, in the text, in the story. Where is Jesus? Where are His disciples? What's happening? Uh, kind of put us in the moment a little bit. And so, so on, my, on my notebook where I started studying you know, two weeks ago, the first question that I put uh, on the top of that particular passage, or on the top of those top of those particular notes, is where are we? Meaning, as we open up and look in the book of Matthew, wh- where is Jesus? Where are his apostles? Where are they going? What are they doing? What have they been doing? And we we find ourselves. I'll get my my Bible to it here in just a second. We find ourselves. In, in an interesting place, uh, as we look in verse 13, it says, when they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is, is, a, is in the northernmost 
the northernmost area of, of, of the Israel nation. This is, make sure you get my, this is, you know, the Israel nation as a whole, right? The promised land. Uh, we have the Dead Sea here, Jerusalem is right in here. We've talked a few weeks about things that happened in the Sea of Galilee, and that's right there. So we'll go to our next slide. We have the Sea of Galilee right here. I'm trying to give you a reference of where we are. And then from the Sea of Galilee, we go north, north, north to Caesarea Philippi. At, at least during the travels of Jesus or during the teachings of Jesus, this is the second kind of most northern point that he travels in his ministry. And it is not necessarily an easy journey. It's in the foothills of the mountain. It's actually a very beautiful place, Caesarea Philippi is. It's, it's a very mountain, rolling hills. The, the headwaters of the Jordan River start here, and that kind of plays into our lesson a little bit. Uh, they, they start here in the bottoms, uh, foothills of these mountains. Uh, and so it is a very green and luscious area. It was a, a great Roman colony. This is an artist's rendition of what the town might have looked like during the time of Jesus, and, and, and probably a very accurate, and maybe not necessarily the buildings, but the way it would have looked. It would have looked very Roman, right? It would have looked very Roman uh, and very, very, very regal, very powerful looking place. But because of all the waters that came through, there were a lot of these uh, natural springs that people would come and, and they would, they would uh, relax in and and, and just enjoy. But also, uh, if you look back at this picture, you see Caesarea Philippi, first century. Pay attention in particular to this grotto of, of Pan. The grotto of Pan is mentioned in this particular text that we're going to read, but it's, it's referred to as the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, depending on your translation. And what this particular area is, is a big entrance in the side of this cave and we're going to try to set the stage because I want you to know what Jesus and his apostles, his disciples, where they are and what they're looking at as this conversation takes place today. They are in this place where the Grotto of Pan, who is actually a, a Roman and Greek god, he's the uh, god that he is like half like horse on the bottom and uh, he has the antlers, but a human torso. You've seen pictures of him. But the, but the Grotto of Pan is actually a big opening in the side of this mountain. And the Greek and Roman gods, by their mythology, by their religion, they dwelled in this particular cave because no matter how hard they would try, no matter how long of a piece of rope or, or try to measure the bottom of this cavern full of water, they never could, at least in ancient Roman times, they never could get to the bottom of it. So they felt like it was a bottomless Hit. And so they gave it the name, the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, because they said that it was the entrance to the underworld where the underworld gods would, would live, where their realm was. And so they are, there is a temple, as you can see, if you go back and look, there is a temple set up right outside and the ruins of it are still there, set up right outside of this particular area. Uh, you can see some of the ruins in this particular text or this particular picture as well. And so as we get into the story, it's, it's important for us to know or maybe important to lay the groundwork to understand that Jesus has brought his disciples to what is possibly one of the most pagan cities 
in the promised land area, in, in the place of where he would have been doing ministry. And, and I think for a couple of reasons he goes there. One of the reasons I think that he goes there, and he spends, Scripture tells us that they're there for a week or a little bit longer. There's two things that happen there during this time. It's this confession, and then his transfiguration happens towards the end of the week. But I think Jesus has come up to this place because it takes a little while to get there, right? It takes a little while to get there. It's, it's, a, it's a journey to get there. But because of all the pagan things that are going on, the sinful things, the, the, the God-worshipping, and that's little g, not big g, little g God-worshipping that's going on there, people of the Jewish faith would have probably not followed Jesus there because they couldn't be around that type of stuff. They, they, it would make them unholy or unclean. So they weren't going to be around any of that. So Jesus found a place that he could kind of, he could go, he could be away from everything, be away from the crowds uh, that, that had been following him and, and just kind of catch some much needed refreshment. Okay, just, just kind of close his eyes and, and, and just rest a little bit. And this is, this is somewhere between a year and a half or to two years into his ministry. So we're about halfway through what, what's going on in the life of Jesus. And so here they all are. In John chapter 9, verse 18, as we get into our particular story, we, we, we see that, that Jesus is taking some personal time. I think that text actually says, it's a parallel passage, that he is praying alone as the disciples come up to him and they start this conversation. So you get this image that Jesus is trying to just relax, spend some personal time with God, maybe some personal time with those that are closest to him. And in the middle of all of this, we get to the conversation, the conversation that he wants to have with them. And the question that he wants to pose to them is, who, who am I? I want you to understand and I want you to think about this. So let's, let's go to your Bibles. Let's look at this section from Matthew 16. We'll use this kind of as our main text, but mention some things from the parallel passages as well. He says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Luke's account actually uses the word crowd there, and we'll get back to that in a minute. I like that word used in that spot. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. He's going to go and have some more conversations with them, but this is where we're going to kind of, kind of jump in and talk about for just a few moments. So he starts this conversation, and as Luke records it, Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, one of the things that we understand about Jesus' ministry from reading the scriptures is that for the most part, everywhere Jesus went, there were a lot of people that followed. Jesus didn't have a lot of just downtime by himself. Uh, we, we do read in different passages in different places where he would withdraw by himself. So he did find time and make time for his own kind of personal well-being and 
and making sure he was uh, in a good place to minister in the way that he knew he had to minister during his life. But these apostles, these, these disciples that are with him, would have as well been around all of these people for, for a year and a half or so at this point. And I'm sure that as Jesus did miracles, as, as Jesus taught, as Jesus did different things, that buzz obviously was created, right? Buzz was created, and people began to talk about who they think this guy might be, who they think that he, he might, you know, what his name is. He's Jesus, right? But, but, but really, who is he? What's, what's his purpose? What's he trying to do? Why is he here? Why is he teaching? And, and I think he's trying to get his guys to, to think a little bit, to dig deep and really kind of pay attention and, and, and get ready to talk about some important things. Because that, that's what's going to happen from this moment on. There's going to be a lot of important conversations and moments in this particular town with Jesus and his closest disciples. And he's getting them to this point. So he starts with a great question, a question that gets them to think, a question that opens their mind, that, that makes them look back into the last year and a half of their ministry together. He goes, hey, who, what's everybody saying about me? And, and I would imagine that there was some, uh, maybe a small moment of silence as they're kind of thinking, you know, for those of you that teach class regularly and ask questions, usually when you ask a question to a group of people, not, not always is there always just a quick response. There's always a moment of thought, right? And, and somebody speaks up and goes, hey, some think you are John the Baptist. At this point, John the Baptist uh, has already been killed, but I think a lot of people might have thought that, hey, he's come back from the dead, right? Uh, he, he's come back from the dead. He's, he's a reincarnated, he's a resurrected John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, which was a great prophet that was said to precede Jesus under the, under the teachings of the Jewish faith. And then someone says, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, right? And so they're saying, hey, we think that they say they think that you are a great messenger of God or one of the prophets that's come back and you're teaching great things. But nowhere in that conversation, right? Nowhere in that conversation is there any acknowledgement of him being who? Of him being the Christ, of him being the Son of God. And I think that's an interesting thing that we can talk about for just a few moments. Because that is a question that I think everybody in some shape, form, or fashion, whether they want to or not, they have to answer in their life is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? To even get to the point to where you say, I'm not going to follow Jesus, you have to ask yourself that question and answer it, at least for, for those that choose that, in a way that makes them feel that Jesus is not anybody that is worthy of being followed. So everybody is faced with that question in their life of who is Jesus? And I tried, to, I tried to think this week of, of some parallels here, like what, what, what might the world say about who Jesus is? Some people might say that he's just an influencer. For those of you who are not you know, up on current social media and, and somewhat of our young people's language, an influencer is, is a spokesperson, basically, someone that their words speak power to a certain product or to a certain different thing. You know, The first influencer that kind of made his way into our house and into our world was a little boy named Ryan from Ryan's Toy Review. He was a little kid that everybody just watched him. All these kids just watched him play with toys on his YouTube channel. And he had so many other kids that watched him that these toy companies would just send him all these free toys. Because as Vance said, well, Ryan's got it, so I want it. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, I missed the boat. I would have played with free toys for a long, long time if they had let me. 
So influencers, now that gets older and older and, and different type of influencers. But some people may look at Jesus and say, hey, he's an influencer. He's trying to influence you to live a certain life. You don't have to. You can choose who you want to follow. It doesn't have to be Jesus, but it could be. Some may say he's nothing more than a motivational speaker, someone who has some good thoughts, some good ideas, or just another guy from another religion. I think that our world looks at him in a lot of different ways, and we can't necessarily pinpoint just one way the world looks at him because a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. But one truth that I think we have to make sure we live in our life, if we choose to be a Christ follower, is we cannot let the crowd's opinion shape Jesus' identity. We cannot let the crowd's opinion shape Jesus' identity. And I really want to talk to our teenagers for just a moment. If you're one of our teenagers, I really want you to key into this statement right here, because if we go back to this list, and especially the idea of influencers and different people, the world you're growing up in, and it's not better, it's not worse, it's just the world that you're growing up in. The world that you're growing up in, you have access to so many different voices, to so many different voices, that when I was a teenager, when, when your parents and your grandparents and your great when we grew up, the voices were a lot more limited, a lot more limited. There were, there were not, we did not have access to all of these people saying all these different things about different things. And if you, it doesn't, it doesn't take long. And parents, I want you to know this too, for the sake of your teenager, it doesn't take long for our teenagers to get on their phone, to get on their tablets, and, and, and begin to search and find voices that can very, I'm not going to say truthfully, but and maybe not even effectively, but, but in, in very powerful words, maybe, in very, the word, just, the word just left me, whatever word it is, but in very effective communication, maybe that's the best way, effective communication can begin to shape the identity of Jesus in the lives of our teenagers and teenagers in your lives. They are very good at taking certain things of Scripture and destructuring them with with words that sound like, oh, well, that sounds like truth. And parents, you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware that they have access to those voices and, and, and know if they're listening to those voices or not. But, but teenagers, let me tell you, you cannot let the crowd, those who are not close to Jesus, you cannot let the crowd shape Jesus' identity in your life. None of us can. But you're at that age and you're at that spot in your life where you're really trying to figure a lot of things out. You're coming in, you're realizing that the world is not just always black and white, right? That you're learning and you're growing and a lot of people want your ear. And Satan knows, Scripture tells this, Satan knows if I can stop one generation from believing in Jesus, I can stop it all. You go back and you read the book of Judges, and the people of Israel had fallen away from, from God. And the statement it says in the, in the chapter 1 or chapter 2, somewhere right in there, it said, and there was a generation who came up and did not know what God had done. One generation. So if he can use all these voices to convince you that, that Jesus' identity is something, not that he doesn't exist, but just that maybe he's not as important or not as powerful, then he wins. Teenagers, be careful the voices of the crowd that you listen to. Be very careful and do not let them shape your opinion of who Jesus is because Jesus tells you who he is. 
And Jesus tells us who He is in this text. And we're going to break that down and talk about that. But be very careful and very discerning about that. So then He has this conversation with them, right? Who does everybody say that I am? And then He asks the big question. What's the big question? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Imagine yourself for almost two years walking the roads with Jesus. The hot days, the cold days, the rainy days, the sunny days. You realize that he's a man that speaks with authority. He speaks with power. He challenges the status quo of the leaders of the day. You've seen his miracles. You've heard his parables as they resonate with truth, and, and, and the question and thoughts come up, right? The question and thought surely has come up at some point, and now Jesus just turns to his disciples and he looks at them, maybe even as if he's gazing right into their hearts, and he asks this question, after all this time, who do you think that I am? You've heard what the crowds say. You've seen what I've done. What does your heart say? And I would imagine that there was a moment of silence then. I know Peter is outspoken, and Peter says, you know, you're the Christ, Son of the living God. But, but I would see, I, I, I just, you know, as I think about this, either Peter answers so quickly that no one else had time, or everybody kind of sits there for a second, and they look at each other. And I wonder if someone thought, because I would think this, hey, he's the Christ, but I'm not going to say it first because I could be wrong. I don't want anybody else to think that, I don't, I don't want to be wrong here. The contemplation that went on, and then Peter speaks out, you're the what? The Christ, the Son of the living God. Now remember where they're sitting. Remember the town that they're sitting in. It's almost like you've got to make a choice right here, right now. This is graduation day. Do you believe I'm Jesus or do you believe I'm not? Do you believe that I am of God or do you believe I'm not? Do you believe that I'm just one of these other gods that, 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 that is represented in this place? Or am I the Christ? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is said in the middle of all these other man-made gods in the most pagan city that they had been to. And he says, I don't care what the world says. I don't care what's going on around me. But I know with all of my heart, you are Jesus. You are the Savior that has been promised. And we have to make that statement in our own life. We have to make that statement in our own life. So let's make it personal. In your life, in your life, for you to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does that mean? What does that mean for you? How does that land in your heart? How does that show in your life? What does that mean? Well, what, what does this statement actually mean for you and to you? Well, let's, <laughs> let's let the text tell us a few things. For me to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the text then tells us that there are some attributes that we are acknowledging, that we are saying, this is who you are. So we start in, in the very first verse. It says now, verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? So we have two descriptions of Jesus right here at the beginning of this text. He starts out and He says, Jesus. And he's just referring to Jesus, right? Jesus isn't calling himself this, but Matthew is, and Luke does, and John does. And what are they saying about Jesus? They are using his name, right? They're using his name. Jesus is how we say it. In Hebrew, it would have been Joshua or Yahweh even in many ways, but it meant God saves. The name Joshua meant 
God saves. So by just saying the name Jesus, what are you admitting? You are admitting that God saves. To all of those in the day of Jesus who looked at him and goes, you're not the son of God, Jesus. They're going, you're not the son of God, God saves. They are calling him and and acknowledging who he is, even in their denial of him. And I love that God gave him that name, that God said, my son's going to be called God saves. So by just saying the name Jesus, by saying, I believe in Jesus, you are acknowledging that he is the one who saves. The next phrase that's used here is son of man. Son of man is a title that is first seen in the book of Daniel. As as Daniel is prophesying, he says, I saw someone like the Son of Man. But as we look through Scripture, and this is from class this morning, guys, this is where this ties in. The Son of Man, that phrase, Son of, in, in the Hebrew culture, meant participates in. Okay, so you take someone like Barnabas. Barnabas was known as the Son of Encouragement, right? So Barnabas, the one who participates in, encouragement. So you're seeing the humanity of Jesus here. Who, does, who do they say the Son of Man is? He, he is acknowledging that He is Jesus, the one who participates in humanity. And that's an important part for us because Jesus had to come and He had to be one of us to be our sacrifice. And He's acknowledging here that I am one of you. And that's important. Because the Hebrew writer, he says this, he says, he's he's talking about Jesus in particular, and he's talking about the importance of his humanity to us in chapter four, because the humanity of Jesus is equally as important to us as the divine nature of Jesus. But this is what he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. And this is where the Son of Man comes in. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why are we able to have that relationship with Jesus? Because he is the Son of Man. He participates in humanity. Because he came and he walked on this earth. And he got hungry and he got thirsty and he got tired, and he got aggravated, and and he was tempted just like us. And because of him being the son of man, we have a God we can approach, and he understands us. And that is an amazing attribute about Jesus, that when we say, I believe in him, we're saying, I believe that he understands me, and that he's been where I have been, and I can approach him and know that he cares. We go on to the last couple of verses and as he looks at, he looks at him, he says, but who do you say I am? And this is Peter's response. He starts off, he says, you are the Christ. And then he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he starts off with the word Christ here. Christ itself means the anointed one or the chosen one. It's actually saying that he is the king. He is the king. He was the king of Israel. He came through the line of David, but not just the king of Israel. He is the king of our life. He says, you are the one that we've been waiting on. You're the one that we've read about. You're the one that we've studied about. You're the one they prophesied about. We've been waiting on you. And I realize that you are this one. You are the chosen one. And he is still our king today. But his reign is not about earthly power. 
His reign is not about physical things. His reign is, is all about love, compassion, servitude. Love, compassion, servitude. In the heart of Jesus, we find a king who stoops to wash the feet of the outcast, and he forgives through crucifixion. That is our king. In Jesus, we find not only a king in whom we owe our allegiance, but a friend who also walks with us, a shepherd who guides us, and a savior who redeems us. That is who the Christ is. And then he ends it with, you are the son of the living God. He says, you participate in the divine nature of God. He shares in the, all the divine essence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That is, that is a part of Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit that is hard to understand sometimes, right? How can you be three in one all at the same time? But Jesus himself has all of the divine essence of God. He is not just a God among gods. He is God himself, and he embodies every attribute of Jesus or of God the Father. He is eternal. He is capable of forgiveness he has authority over creation. He responds to prayer. And because of Jesus' defined nature, because of his sacrificial love and his redemptive work, he is worthy of the highest praise, worship, and honor that we give to God the Father. He says, you are God. Now, think about your own life for just a moment. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus for you? What, what are you letting shape your understanding of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God? For some people, I think he's just a teacher, even in faith. Some people look at him as a healer who brings restoration and, and wholeness. But I think more importantly, we have to look at him as our saving king, our saving king who reigns in our life and offers us hope beyond the world that we live in now. But regardless of your answer to the question, one thing remains that Jesus invites each and every one of us into a personal relationship with Him. And once we get into that relationship, through His Holy Spirit, He will counsel us, walk with us, encourage us, and help us truly answer the question of who is Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer, then we'll have our invitation. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much for who he is and what he did for us and how he lived his life. The fact that we can approach him in all confidence, knowing that he understands us. We thank you for the great confession of Peter that serves as the foundation of your church, the, the first real building block of the kingdom that was put into place, that acknowledgement. And we thank you so much for everything that has been built since in the kingdom that we are a part of. And we pray, God, that we will live in that kingdom searching and, and seeking to understand Jesus a little bit better every single day. We pray that as we learn more about him and understand him, that we will share that message with others and that we will help others come into a relationship with him as well. We thank you for this time together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Well, Thank you again for joining us, and please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel or our podcast. 
We can be found on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast provider. Also, leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. You can also follow us on Facebook. Instagram. Mortals join the mighty chorus. And Twitter. Morning stars began. Be sure to join us again. And until then, remember to love like Jesus. Amen.